Anything? Uh, do you have any local uh, local stories you want to start us off with? Oh man, there's just some drama with City Hall. John Whitmire is like constantly throwing shade at uh, Sylvester Turner. Not typically too common for a current administration to be talking mad shit on the past administration. And in a story that definitely upset me, uh, so the state of Texas, there's a federal program to supply low-income families with lunches over the summer, you know, to kind of offset the uh, the school lunch expense uh, when there's no school, right? So it's a $450 million program that was going to be, you know, feeding $120 per child to cover summer lunches, and the state just backed out, opted out. So it's one of 15 different states. It's fucked up. It it, it, it makes me really upset. I, I do know some parents that were and are going to be affected by this. Um, and it's a damn shame. This is this is why we want to move into media criticism. Because every time, like, we loved laughing at the, the whole, like, Civil War 2.0, it's happening. Let's go to the border. Like, it was so stupid and funny. And then when there's not something stupid and funny happening, there's something that's just like, outright cruelty yeah being enforced uh, i was gonna ask does this coincide with the recent uh acquisition of like uh the lunchable school contract i don't know if you heard about this recently but um yeah no. lunchables now signed a contract uh with certain schools to where they are the schools are providing lunchables like perhaps some of the most least healthy like foods uh high sodium like Kind of shitty protein intake. Yeah, they're basically kid MREs. Yeah. Yeah. What? And yeah. <laughs> they are now serving those for just like food and lunch and shit now. Kids aren't even getting like cooked food anymore. As an adult, I can tell you like that's pretty awful. As a kid, if you told me like I got a Lunchable every day, I'd lose my fucking shit. I'd be yeah. so happy. I get it, right? Yeah. Like give the kids what they want, man. Maybe. I remember, I remember Sid Miller agricultural commissioner of uh texas turns out the agricultural commissioner has a lot more responsibilities than i originally thought and they're in charge of school lunches and so they undid some changes of removing soda machines from schools and they got soda machines back into schools so we're just gonna have with soda machines and lunchables we're just gonna create like i just don't get it like there's so much warmongering against china and China's coming for you. I mean, Marco Rubio said, like, oh, this cell phone outage. We don't know if it's China, but the next one could be China. Like, the, the, it's so ridiculous. Meanwhile, China is actually, like, we're making all of your kids, uh, you know, go through exercising regimes and, and uh, regiments in class. Everyone's super fit. They have a whole wolf warrior mentality going through it. Uh I shouldn't say everyone. There's still like some people that are not fit. Obviously, there's a lot of fat Chinese people, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they, they, they. I, I just watched a documentary on uh, China's war with obesity and specifically childhood obesity and the, the things that they're doing. I just think it's very silly for America to role play as like we got to get ready to go to China, uh, go to war with China, and then we see like we're just raising our kids on slop. No one's going to be eating healthy, and then they're going to complain that nobody's signing up for boot camp. And then they're going to be complaining that like all of our children are dying at the age of twenty-four from gout. It's it's going to be fucking awful. Yeah, but isn't that the future our founding fathers wanted for us? Yeah, actually, um, 
It's one of the uh, articles of the Constitution that got left on the chopping floor. What is that quote? Uh, I fight in wars so that my children can become artists and fat slobs. I think I think it'd be funny if it's like a, my hands look like this, so hers can look like this, and it's just like the most like gaudiest swollen hands for both of them. <laughs> Just some real sausage finger shit. Some yeah, kielbasa like King, fingers. King to Charles be fingers. Polish specific. It's those two. Uh, it's those two women that are like shoving infinite marshmallows into their face. One of the most depressing like videos I, I recall seeing like ever on the internet. The chubby bunny sisters. Yep. We, hey, just brutal stuff. It's great though. Hey, I'm. I hope they're doing well. At, I dude. I wish them the best. Kids used to run around saying with finger guns saying bang bang on the playground. Now they just want mukbang on the playground. (laughs) (laughs) Mukbang warrior. (laughs) All right. So uh, we've been been chit-chatting and shooting the shit long enough. Um, You've been hearing a new voice here on Propaganda. First off, welcome to Propaganda. I'm Connor, joined by my lovely co-host, Alec. And I just wanted to welcome our guest today. It's our first guest today. Uh, They are a good friend of mine. They're a poet known as Coyote Bloodbath, and they are also the frontmen of a band here in Houston called Rahul Rao and the Whites. Everybody, Rahul Rao. Hi, it's me. Yay. Clap, clap, clap. Thanks for coming on, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, no fucking sweat. Uh, It's good to see you, Alec. Uh, It's been a minute. Uh, When are you you coming down next? We and Rahul have definitely uh, hung out a number of times, had a great time, but... uh... I live in I live in Louisiana, far away, and now I got a kid, so that's really complicated uh, hangout time. Oh, uh, I understand. Uh, well, whatever. Uh, Hopefully soon, though. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, fuck, I remember. Um, there's a there's a movie coming out. You mentioned it on the previous episode. The Civil War. The Civil War, War movie. Alex that's Garland, right. Yeah. Okay, is that actually about the Civil War? I truly have not looked up it's, anything. It's about, about it. it's it's a I I believe it's a uh, alternate present or alternate yeah. uh, near future uh, kind near of future uh, where where the United States descends into some kind of a very stupid civil war and then something something journalism. But uh, okay, yeah, but it's an A twenty four, so it'll be shot well and you know California and Texas <laughs> secede and join forces. And uh, the guy who wrote and directed it, Alex Garland, I mean, he did Ex Machina, he, he, which is like a fantastic film. So uh, I'm very, very excited to see what he's got. So it's an alternate history movie, basically. Not history, kind of, yeah. but... Oh, because it is, it is in the future. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. In the very near future. I mean, it's essentially like today. Yeah, mm. it, I think it's like in the year 2025, after uh, Biden's landslide victory against trump or something like that <laughs> okay or trump's landslide victory against biden i don't think it really matters it doesn't one way or the yeah. other <laughs> you, i imagine i imagine the president of the film will just be like a johnny everyman kind of thing do you think the writers of that movie are going to like pull a south park and then like make an edit right at midnight when they find the results <laughs> there are two Ooh, versions nice. of the film ready to go okay <laughs> that's like that uh, i don't know if you guys remember that that extremely stupid decision I mean, it's just so fucking hack that uh, that thing they did with the West Wing, where they had like the viewers elect the president <laughs> on the show, oh, and then like man. had two different versions of the show. And it's like it's a lib show, right? Like you know who they're gonna fucking pick. Sure, they're not gonna vote for the Republican candidate. Or yeah, uh, Martin Sheen has like been been doing it too hard for too long for it them be, to like replace him. It's so funny to think of Martin Sheen being like, "Oh my god, I could lose my fucking job if not enough people vote." 
But it also makes me think of like, if that had happened today, how quickly people would troll it to like fuck up the show. Because oh, I just think about the contest right? where like Pitbull was sent to Alaska to perform for a small town. <laughs> Because people trolled the uh, uh, the in like Alaska, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and 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 the winner tonight is Donald J Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's the front man on on uh, West Wing. They just end West Wing. Although that's probably that's probably back when when Trump was still kind of in the good graces. That's what that's what we need to. Since we see George W. Bush hanging out with Ellen, it's if he lived long enough, we'll see. Donald Trump like making a cheeky little cameo on a show again, and everyone will be like, "Oh, he's like cute little grandpa." That I assume happened around the advent of times when like uh, the call-in viewer voting system was like real big during like that late '90s, early 2000s, like Big Brother era, reality show era, yeah. American Idol. That's how you voted for people. The Fuck Kids me. Choice Awards. Yeah, was like a, wild. I remember that was a big deal and, for <laughs> Kids TV. Yeah, and to think that no one thought about just like. Pulling silly pranks on it until the internet was more modernized. That's crazy. Well, everyone thought about it, but they weren't organized. And the internet brought about collective it organization. Took, uh, it took it took four chan boards for people to be able to like troll Mountain Dew or whatever. Hell yeah! Shouts out to Habbo Hotel. Habbo Hotel, gushing granny. That was a that was a I believe a Mountain Dew flavor that they yeah they, <laughs> they, they tried to uh, they were all really gross that was one of the least offensive of the four chan sodas okay so today we're talking about Genro to Wolf Brigade <laughs> yeah well I was gonna say uh, a good segue to this is that we were talking about Civil War which is a potential a potential alternate history movie this is an alternate history movie that yeah. we uh, watched yes. today sure is. And, uh, I want to start things off by asking you. So, so when we when we were talking about bringing Rahul on, this came up as one of the. I think Rahul suggested one, but it's an actual anime, and uh, yeah, we, did, we didn't have time. I don't have an, I don't have that much time to watch like a series yet. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we'll have you. Um, maybe we'll have you back to do it if we. Uh, yeah, I would say if you are uh, interested in the series, we can uh, we can talk about it. But that would definitely require like. Um, yeah, you need more time than like yeah. a, a few days. I mean, if the podcast really takes off and time's an issue, like I'll just call CPS and have your kid take it away. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could probably call now. Um, his dad's been recording a podcast where he talks about politics. <laughs> he called. Give us an address. <laughs> yeah, can you get a can you get Crunchyroll access in like state prison in Louisiana? I mean, probably. I mean, if you can yeah. get anything else in in prison in Louisiana, anime Angola, I'm sure you, man. I'm sure you can record a podcast in like Swedish or Finnish prison. Oh God, it's like a gold star podcast. They have a studio. They have a studio that, that they let you use. <sighs> uh, so this show is basically about why we don't live in that world um, <laughs> yeah. historically. So, so my my question first is: so, so this was a recommendation I think from Connor, mm-hmm. and strangely because Connor has not seen this movie. Uh, uh, this is a recommendation from Connor through me. Uh, okay, because I have not true. I have definitely told you to watch this movie. Me and have both told so, you to watch I don't, so I don't talk movie? to Oh, well, I don't fuck, like, fuck around like that, man. Don't we don't fuck, fuck like that. I don't we, fuck I'm with bleeping all like of those names and posts. So wh- why You're so full did... of shit. Hang on. I'm pulling up our text thread. I'm mad about Damn this. It. This is getting cut, you fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so why? Uh, my question is, why this movie? What what is it? What about it is attractive outside of just having like a, a Nazi like death squad guy on the cover? So Rahul did not recommend I see this. 
Alec, you did. Um, and you've been talking <laughs> about it forever, and I had to keep putting it off. All right. Yeah, you've seen this movie already, Alec? I have seen this several times. Oh, perfect. All right. Great. Good, so great. it was written by Mamoru Oshii. O- Oshii? Oshii? Oshii. Uh, Oshii. And uh, he is the uh, director of Pat Labor 2, which is absolutely, like, we're going to do that on a future episode. It's absolutely one of my favorites. I know it's one of your favorites, Alec. And I've just been wanting to see it. I, I know it looks cool. And I always put it off because I'm just, like, weirdo that has to, like, well, I have to read the entire manga so I can appreciate the very first movie that they put out. And uh, I didn't have time. We needed a movie quick. And I was like, I know, Alec, you have talked to me a lot about the fascist themes of this movie. It was an anime. We were like, ah, let's keep it in the anime realm because I know, Rahul, you, you, you know and love your anime. And I thought this would be a good one for us to try and tackle. And um, it's very complex, very dense. And hopefully we can all talk about <laughs> what the message of the film is. So I want I do not want this to become a motherfucking weeb podcast, but Mamoru Oshii is like one of my, probably one of my favorite writers, maybe of all time in terms of movies. So, oh, he's so good. So he's, he's, he's produced and written quite a bit more than these three movies, but... Um, yeah, uh, and Connor... <laughs> Connor, you mentioned Pat Labor 2. You did not even mention, perhaps, his most famous movie, Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I consider his work... I've seen, I've seen quite a few more than those three. But those three are kind of like the, the, a political trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ghost in the Shell, Pat Labor 2, and Jinro. Um, two being kind of um, alternate presents or alternate futures with sci-fi elements. And Jinro being a kind of an alternate past with some, some light sci-fi elements, I'd say. I just saw Ghost in the Shell in theaters recently mm-hmm. with uh, our buddy Ned, and I think there was, if I recall correctly, there was only one other person in the theater in front of us, and uh, they farted. <laughs> <laughs> I could I be mean, wrong. <laughs> th- that's yet true. I'm not going to make a sweeping generalization of anime fans, but I will let that speak for itself. So Ghost in the Shell is probably the best known. It's, I, I would say it's the best film. Narratively, structurally, this, the aesthetic is kind of perfect. Um, it's it's the best movie of the three. I would say that I think Ghost in the Shell is actually lightest on ideology and, and commentary. Uh, Ghost in the Shell mostly revolves around speculation about the future of humanity and kind of personhood in, um, in a post-technologically advanced society and, and features some themes of... Uh, of of the state, the the themes of it, while they definitely veer towards that uh, sci-fi like uh, dystopic future kind of thing, they're they are definitely more focused on like what does it mean to be human? Like what is a soul in a right. world where like souls can technically be faked and replaced? You know, like yeah, yeah. There doesn't really, if I recall correctly, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, political critique within Ghost in the Shell. At least not in the movie. Yeah. There, there is lightly. I think the reason why Ghost in the Shell is so popular is because it's actually the lighter one on political content, and and you'll you'll notice this about uh, Oshi's the, these three works that that the political commentary is meta textual. The actual narrative of the movie is far less important than the world that it places you in, and the inferences and observations that you have to make to. 
um, to develop the the kind of political statements that the movies are saying. Yeah. So Ghost in the Shell does have elements of uh, kind of uh, technological integration of like a military industrial complex and the state. It features quite heavily in those. And all three of them feature a kind of internal subterfuge within the state, meaning different bodies of the state uh, are in conflict with one another and vying for political viability and importance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, yes, absolutely. My Mamoru Oshii fucking loves his interdepartmental, like, drama. He just loves when uh, different bureau heads are, like, sternly looking at each other. And he oh, does yeah. it in a way that's very kind of, it feels very Japanese. Um, Japanese politics is, in the modern era, post the Second World War, is kind of dominated with the specter of the United States on one side. And and he, he will just outright mention them in, I think, all three of these works. Uh, I mean, oh yeah. In Jinro, it is the Germans, but they're a stand-in for the Americans, and mm-hmm. so the, the the nature of these different groups vying for political viability, despite the fact that it doesn't necessarily help their ultimate goals, right, is something that's just reoccurring. It's present in Ghost in the Shell. It's totally in the forefront in Pat Labor, right, because that's that's more about an actual coup and and uh, and an overt struggle between those groups. And the setup for those worlds, and I would argue the setup for the world that we live in, is described in Jinro, in this alternative history that is an allegory for the world that we live in. Um, some of those allegories are very naked um, and pertain to Japan specifically in the post-Second World War. Some of them are kind of throwbacks visually to the post-First World War era or, or the kind of 1920s and 30s. Um, but they're all there. And I would argue that Jinro is actually the most um, the most metatextually political. It has the most focus on what Oshi believes, I would argue, is the kind of transitionary state from the, the, the kind of tumultuous promises of liberalism in the post-World War II era or the post-First World War era into the structure of today. But all of that is hidden, right? It's not... It's not in the it's not in the text of the narrative. Um, basically, I would say that the narrative of Jinro in in this uh, this one guy and his romance with this uh, you know what turns out to be a spy is not that important, right? And I would argue not even very good, which is probably why this <laughs> this movie doesn't this movie doesn't really feature in the kind of pantheon of big anime movies, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, on that, I'll just run through the synopsis really quick. So we have an opening coda uh, that says, This thing is like a wolf. This thing is a wolf. Thus, it is a thing to be banished. Then there's some uh, prologue narration discussing about after World War II, protester activity is leading to the formation of a uh, uh, quote-unquote terrorist group called the Sect. And so there is the special forces or the... I, I, I didn't know how to really pronounce this. I'm imagining Kerberos. So like, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's not Cerberus. Cerberus. Well, that's why I was curious because yeah. it's a K and a K. Yeah, they uh, they go out of their way to like uh, super Greekify it up and okay. uh, call it uh, Kerberos with the K. But yeah, they're just Cerberus. Okay, they're uh, reusing the the dog imagery. They're more. referred to as Capo as as a, a truncation of Capital Police often in the movie. Gotcha. So, uh, the movie opens up with protesters rioting in the streets, and police are calling for reinforcements, and we see a woman walking alone in the alleyways, avoiding the protest. We're seeing cops uh, 
a really cool shot of terrified police watching another cop burn as he got hit by a special Molotov with magnesium in them. Uh, so it's like burning intensely. I don't know the chemistry of it, but it, it seems to be fucking him up. So the woman keeps walking alone. She uh, approaches some smugglers that are coming out of the sewers, and they give her a knapsack and say, a gift for your granny. So she passes the knapsack off to a different person who is walking through the crowd. Turns out the knapsack is a bomb that's thrown into the crowd of police. So this woman meets up with another group in the sewers, and they give her another knapsack, and she takes off alone. So we're seeing right here, this is a woman who's part of uh, the protest network, terrorist network. Uh, you know, I don't know if we've talked about it, but, like, the word terrorist is really used as a, a priming or a framing technique within mass communication as a way to get you to automatically assume these are the bad guys. You, you say freedom fighters when you like them. You say terrorists when you don't like them. Uh, so moving on, she hears a noise. She becomes scared. She runs back the way she came, uh, came in the sewer, and she comes across a Cerberus. Cur- the <laughs> Cerberus? Yeah. You can do, uh, I guess if you wanted to be accurate, you could call it Kerberos, but we know it's Cerberus. Okay. Like, so hold on. We, Did you guys – this is kind of crucial. Did you guys watch the dubbed or the subbed version? I, I think- watched the dub. Dumbass. I figured y'all would watch the sub so we'd have like different varying perspectives yeah. on the film. It's kind of it's kind of tough because even in the sub version they call it a bunch of different shit and like Oshi you have to infer who the fuck any of these people are which makes it kind of hard to watch. So Capo and Cerberus or Kerberus are the same group. Then within Kerberus or Cerberus there's the bureau which is kind of the office intelligence uh, bureaucratic arm and there's the unit who are the actual guys in the the Nazi mech suits. Yeah, basically. Nazi mech suits. And I, I can assure you, the dub version is just as, like, I'm just as in the dark as anyone else. Considering, hey, uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to Michael Dobson and, uh, oh my God, Monica, Monica K. The, the main, the two main characters of this yeah. both went on to have really stellar careers in voice acting, uh, but this is not their finest work in any capacity. Because <laughs> I watched the dub too. Because uh, the dub is only, it's the only one available on Crunchyroll, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah. They, you can uh, watch the free version. For anybody who wants to watch it, you can watch the the based, by the way, uh, and correct <laughs> subbed version on Tubi oh. for free. You have to mute through the uh, the ads about, um, right now there's an ad about uh, you can meet uh, you can meet your, your future wife if you're both interested in disgusting pimple popping. Uh, that is a real <laughs> ad that Tubi presents you. Honestly, that sounds like a great way to meet a person. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, Dude, I, I guess I don't watch enough TV. I'm fucking horrified by what passes for, like, ads nowadays. Oh, I mean, the Twitter ads with the, all the vibrators and just people's random manic sentences are, are, are a great reflection of what advertising is. It, ads just feel like fucking TikTok videos now. Or maybe yeah. TikTok videos are all ads. I don't know. The chicken or egg. It's always been ads. All social media has been ads all the time. It always was. So uh, this woman runs away from the Cerberus uh, patrol and then finds herself alone and face-to-face with a single Cerberus unit. She goes to blow up the bomb, and the soldier says, Don't! And as she does it, he just says, Why? And he's flabbergasted and stunned that she blew herself up. He's tossed out of the way by a friend of his, uh, a squad mate, whatever the fuck it is patrolmate so we cut to generals and leaders talking about the soldier who's re- revealed to be named kazuki fuze uh who was in front of the bomb and uh they're talking about the co-policing agreement between the the capital police the and the cerberus units and the special forces capital police and cerberus are the same thing yeah uh oh they're the state police the, 
Yeah, they're they're specifically talking about the in that scene they're mentioning talking about the local police's uh, authority, oh, okay, uh, versus like the capital police, gotcha, which are like an external force. So in the preamble of the show, we're shown that protests and rioting and then terrorism, right, uh, 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 civilian violence, uh, that the that the state has in response to that violence created what essentially is a paramilitary police, right? They don't want to in a very Japanese way. Um, which which some uh, some people smarter than me have, have described as a kind of bonsaiification in the post World War era, where where the the um, the elements of the state that otherwise would be strong are kind of stunted both by uh, the kind of American oversight and other things. So so basically the out of a desire to not allow the military to become too strong or the kind of state police, they describe metropolitan police. We're talking about Tokyo, but it's it's basically a state police force. Um, to become too strong, they create a third party. And this is a paramilitary that's whose purpose, Capo, that's job is to is to use more muscle than the police possibly could, right? And what they are are uh, they're they're kind of a classic paramilitary. they they're both um, they're both functionally a riot police and imbued with a kind of um, with with the military equipment and training to uh, combat directly uh, a militarized political opposition. Right. Yeah. They, and they're it's it's left up to the viewer to decide whether or not these guys are more like riot cops or more straight up just like a fascist paramilitary, like a death squad. Right. While they definitely are kitted up to be way more effective than like local police, they still have to manage the sort of like internal politics of like, well, what does it mean if we capture this criminal right here? If we go after this person, there are lots of ramifications that will go up to our superiors. So, yeah, a lot of the time they are kind of uh, our Capitol Police Cerberus, our our special Gestapo squad is like more often than not put in a position of just like waiting for something to happen. They can't really be particularly proactive with things. So within this meeting, uh, we get the very first mention of the Wolf Brigade, which is uh, inferred or implied to be a uh, uh, counterintelligence kind of uh, uh, skunk works within the Cerberus unit. Then we cut to Fusei. He's giving a report on the mission that uh, went awry in the sewers. He appears to be traumatized by the bomb going off and uh, the girl willing to kill herself. So he is sent to retraining until further notice. He, he becomes soyboid. He needs to get uh, based again. <laughs> yeah, he's he's lost his nerve, right? Yeah. He's become he's become soyified. It should be said that that the bomb going off in the sewers, right, in the initial kind of uh, uh, combat sequence. The reason that it's a problem is because the paramilitary is overlapping with the police's uh, jurisdiction, right? And that this is a kind of political threat to the police because the paramilitaries are supposed to be subjugated under the control of the police and a civilian government, right? And that the bomb going off kind of alerts everybody. It becomes a scandal because it alerts everybody to the act- to the secret actions of this paramilitary group of of Capo that is unsanctioned by the state. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't help that the bomb then, uh, in order to then make it even more public, the bomb like completely destroys and cuts off power, which uh, uh, ultimately allows the state police to lose in the fight against the protesters. Which then, of course, like since the people in charge don't want the protesters there against like the left wing protests, then yeah, they come down even harder. Yeah. 
as we'll see in the rest of the movie. Sorry. So then we get a, a really sweet training montage of Fusei, uh, which culminates in him uh, feeling alienated on a bus. He he's looking at everybody on this bus. Some people look at him and feel uh, 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 you know a little put off by him. And this all culminates within him going to the museum and standing in front of an exhibit of these wolves, where he meets a friend of his, uh, Henme Henme. And Henry just gives him some special notes regarding his case report, as well as the name and information of the woman who uh, blew herself up. So uh, Fusei uh, goes to her grave, at which point he sees a woman in a red hood that is praying, and she looks exactly like the woman who blew herself up, and uh, it's revealed to be like her sister. Um, and she seems to be in really high spirits for her sister dying, which I made a note of. Yeah, she's of. stoked. Yeah, she's and and like throughout this, um, she seems constantly just in a very good mood, as opposed to the gravity of the situation being like a family member dying and then her having this bizarre, stilted, silent romance with uh, this yeah. guy who's who's basically a, a death squad thug, right? I think I think crucially, Fuse is shown kind of time and time again as being an extremely good soldier, right? Except for kind of losing his nerve. And and not uh, not murdering <laughs> not murdering a young partisan, he's shown to be a very good soldier, but he is dumb as fuck. My man <laughs> is not smart, and it's not it's not I uh, kind of uh, directly shown, but it's implied over and over again. Every time he's asked a question, he's like, I don't know, man. I'm just fucking hanging out. He's uh, he's Sylvester Stallone, but Japanese, you know. So this uh, older sister, whose name is escaping me right now, it is uh, her K? name is K. K. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So K gives him. A copy, a German copy of Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, Rote Kipchen. Yeah, Rote Kipchen. So Fusei is reading this book alongside shots of Cerberus training exercises. He fails in his training, is lambasted by senior uh, superior officers, at which point one of his superior officers is like, why is he being so bad at this? Is there like a girl? Is he like distracted by girl? And his friend, Henry, is like, nah, man, nah. And I mean, that's that's another the training montage where they're in the house is another showcase that these guys are not very good at their fucking jobs. Right. Like all sensibly, all of these guys are in training, but he's supposed to be really fucking good at this. And he gets fucking owned by his trainer. Can't 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 hack it anymore. So he continues to hang out with the sister and they go to a carnival where uh, Kay says she wants to move to a new city where no one knows her and become someone else. They, de- they then see a boy trip. Uh, he's carrying a balloon. The boy, a little boy trip, loses his balloon. He's like, <laughs> and as Kay goes to comfort him, Fusei uh, hallucinates a wolf eating a person and suddenly he's hallucinating in a sewer, chasing the original bomb girl while being followed by wolves. And then he turns the girl around, and it's the, the sister, it's Kay. And she says, you can't come with me. You know that's not allowed. And then the visions then turn to wolves eating her, and he's shooting the sister, and he's shooting her. And it's just like he's losing his fucking mind. And then he wakes up in his bunk bed. So his, his kind of feelings of guilt, his either PTSD or, or kind of uh, his mental breakdown, right, is, is mirrored in the poem that she gives her. And this is the kind of great... Uh, this will be an analogy for the great kind of narrative arc of their romance and of the film itself. The, the, the theme of uh, the animal in the kind of the soldier, right, the, the military man, the fascist, and, uh, and the little red riding hood, which is um, both the partisan girl that he fails to kill and that is the kind of inception of his uh, breakdown, and her sister, who, who he sees as a kind of uh, a stand-in, a, a resurrection of the original no, girl. No, you say, you say resurrection. I, 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 I want to ask, do you also think that he sees, like, a redemption? 
I feel like that's uh, definitely supposed to be implied what he's thinking, yeah. especially considering that uh, the two of them are mirrored. Also, a fun little note. In English, uh, it's called Jinro the Wolf Brigade, uh, but in the direct translation from Japanese, uh, they're called the Werewolf Brigade, which again ties uh, very much into like the whole Little Red Riding Hood, like uh, a wolf pretending to be human, but it's it's ultimately still just a wolf. Well, yeah, also, like, uh, I mean, werewolf is just like a man transforming into something bestial and the, the beast within, mm-hmm. um, which is all just like, hammered over us by the end uh we'll yes oh yeah too. my man's fists are made of ham yeah. Dude. <laughs> yeah so this is this is presented very yeah very clearly as you're saying right over and over these themes of the bestial nature of the work that capo does and and the kind of the bestial um, nature that that work requires really mm-hmm. and a kind of separation ideologically and 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 mentally of those individuals from broader society, that the, the true nature of those who have become militarized, right, or of the fascist, is in direct opposition to the safety of the social body. So, uh, after this scene where he, like, wakes up in the bunk bed, we cut to a scene of the policing organization. Uh, all their leaders are meeting in secret, and it is revealed that the sister, Kay, is actually a spy who has been hired by Henmi. So we are now seeing the conspiracy against Fusei ten, uh, start to unravel. This is our big reveal. Capo is shown, is shown as kind of being on the political outs, having kind of admittedly failed in their uh, mission to quell rioting and protesting. They're now under political threat because of the messiness of their activities in, in, in yeah. that mission. They, they keep having incidents in which the public feels more threatened, and these are being used as a pretext for uh, the kind of metropolitan police, the more classic and kind of liberal structure of state security to threaten their yeah. existence. And the state security is, uh, within this meeting, they also reveal like their intention for set- or, or the reason for setting up this conspiracy, which is they want to move policing away from brute force through the Cerberus unit, and they want to adopt a more uh, intelligence-focused peacekeeping kind of thing, which is just like Surveillance. Sounds yeah. familiar? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like maybe a world that we live in? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't, because this is alternate history, and we definitely didn't experience anything like this. Yeah. So, Kay calls Fusei and says, there are strange men following me. Can you meet me? And he goes to leave, and he almost brings his gun before he decides against it. So he sneaks out of his barracks and he goes to meet Kay at the museum. And then we see that there are armed men hiding in the museum. They're ready to shoot and uh, apprehend Fusei. It's been a honeypot. Fucking sick anime action montage there, ensues. Yes. Uh, one of one of many in this, a, in this movie. Incredible I mean, scene of a guy just like speaking into his microphone like, I'm at location. I'm ready to fight. And then you just see a hand come up from behind him in the darkness and Fusei just like chokes him out and steals his gun. Fuse is sick. He's like a Jason Bourne and fucking James Bond right. combined, right? So what you said earlier, Alec, like we, we, we've only seen him up to this point as just like kind of adult who just can't even get his Kerber's training, ex- Kerber's training exercises through. But now we're seeing like, oh, he's like a fucking super soldier. He's really, really good. Perhaps more that uh, maybe not necessarily a super soldier. I, I never considered him to be like, while obviously the members of the Wolf Brigade unit are like, uh, they're top tier, right? I always just assumed, 
I took that scene to mean more of um not necessarily to show his competency because uh I feel like uh, Fuse's competency is like kind of assumed before this incident in the movie. Um, rather, for me, uh, that scene kind of shows the incompetency of like the local police, this like the state police, you know, yeah. uh, being unable to capture a guy in like a pretty elaborate trap that they've set up, even with like numbers and shit. Yeah, just like numbers and being... Fuse doesn't even have his mech suit on. Yeah. This is a this is a cooperative effort between the the capo bureau, right? The structure of the uh, Kerberos administrative and intelligence wing of Kerberos itself with the police to create an incident that will invalidate the the paramilitary side of things and allow for it to be absorbed into uh, the regular police force, right? So that these are regular cops that are trying to, um, to to frame fuse, and they are in way the fuck over their head. Right, they have no fucking clue what's coming their way, and he owns the shit yeah. out of them. So he approaches Kay, and in uh, their interaction, it's revealed that this was supposed to be a staged bomb transfer, which would result in Fusey's arrest, and would show that hey, the Cerberus unit has moles that can't be trusted. They're working with the the terrorists. We have to disband this unit completely, and they were just going to use them as a patsy. They were going to set them up. <laughs> this is i think an actually a pretty overt homage to like the years of lead in italy it, it very much feels um like that kind of historic false flag is being alluded can to. you uh can you uh, explain it's... uh what that is i oh for the listener uh rahul <laughs> rao <laughs> I, no i i will say this for the listener rahul rao is uh perhaps way way less politically sort of knowledgeable than uh these two fine white gentlemen here <laughs> no it's it's all good i mean it's european history after all oh so. yeah so this guy <laughs> it's 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 a white people history yeah. so so this this feels like a straight up homage to like operation gladio to kind of like cia stay behind networks and to the false flags that i mean essentially are kind of proven to have happened in um in the the middle stages of the Cold War in Italy, right, passing off bombings as the actions of um, of left wing groups like mm. the Red Brigades, for instance. The, the years of lead is long and very complex, you know, very kind of secretive, and um, it's it's real conspiracy head shit. Um, so I'm not going to try to sure, uh, sure. encapsulate the entirety of it um, um, here, right? But but in essence, it, it's the kind of ratcheting up of tensions by either left-wing uh, terrorism or perhaps uh, the insinuation of left-wing terrorism, and that leading to uh, both internal political strife right within um, the Italian state and government and, and, a, and an external, right, a, um, a populist call to greater security. Operation Gladio and Propaganda Due, uh, the, the Masons and, uh, and maybe even the Catholic Church, Right, the effects that those guys had on uh, public discourse, the security state, and and eventually the politics of Italy during those years by the use of, of terrorist activity and bombings. No, I, well, I was going to say it, it sounds similar to the like uh, the Sacco and Vanzetti thing, where like you you blame the anarchists yeah. for uh, for the doing Italian the thing. anarchist. Yeah, okay, but when when in reality, like there's just evidence against them, but you need them as like a political scapegoat. Yeah. In that way. Oh, she loves his false flags, by the way. Like, all of his good works feature Talk. false yeah. flags. Yeah, Rahul, you've it's... seen Pat Labor, too, right? 
I actually that is the uh, I have not seen any of the Pat Labor like right. anime movies. Well, that's now, the one, that's the thing I haven't seen. You're uh, beating me on this one. Well, You're beating me off to, on this we're, one. We're gonna have to hang out. Pat Labor Two is is by the way by far the best out of the entire series. Um, the other ones are watchable. They're they're fine. Uh, Pat Labor Two is yeah. incredible. It is like a masterpiece. And the rest of the show, by, by the way, by like not focusing on the like mech anime aspects as much, uh, it is like this basically a political drama. Yeah. It it's probably my favorite anime film. Um, Tight. Yeah. So uh, when when Fusei approaches K. He reveals that, like, I knew the plot all along. Like, I know. I know you're setting me up. Let's get out of here. She's like, whoa, 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 what? Really? Seems like they've fallen in love, which was a surprise to me. But um, so Oh, they, yeah, that's right. They, they kiss, right? It's unclear whether their romance is, is real yeah. or not. But they escape and, uh, and, and ride around town. They eventually go to that same stupid roof where the carnival was and make out. They kiss. <laughs> then they go back to the sewer Listen, hey, I we need to talk about that kiss for a second because, like, I, I know it. I know it's really goofy, but also, uh, in in anime and in Japan, like Japanese media specifically, they don't really show kisses. Like the that's like a level of affection that they don't really, uh, you don't really see a lot on television. I mean, much less like a, a hetero. I don't know, man. I've either. seen a lot of images of Piccolo and Goku making out. I did not know that that. I did not know that that was like socially subversive. Kind of, yeah. It's um, I obviously don't want to speak to like the larger Asian diaspora, but speaking from an Indian perspective, like yeah, showing a kiss like on a national scale or at least in like film like that wasn't a big, wasn't like a thing that happened in India. People didn't uh, kiss on screen until like the mid two thousands in like a in like a you know a mainstream movie like that, uh, and to think that like. Uh, Stuff like that was being able to be shown in, like, 1999. So, Rahul, I have a question for you. Um, sure. I've seen on some 90 Day Fiancé episodes that take place in India that, um, and this could be, like, the guy just didn't want to kiss his fiancé, but uh, I saw a white woman came to India to be with her fiancé, and she tried to kiss him, and he got, like, she was being too physically affectionate, and he indicated or implied that it was illegal to be openly affectionate in india is that true no it's just uh india's (laughs) they're culturally fucking weird my dad is like the same way about that i am not i i like being physically affectionate but like it's a very sort of like weird machismo thing but also you you you're touchy-feely with your boys (laughs) <laughs> yeah, really? it's it's very strange. Yeah, um, that sounds similar to America in some ways, for sure. But like, uh, I definitely think in India they take it uh, they take it further than I guess would be, I don't know, socially acceptable here. Like, uh, men hold hands and like hold each other and stuff, mm-hmm. and like that's all wonderful and non toxic. But then the toxic part happens when like, no, we cannot show these same affections to women. Gross women. So uh, let's wrap up this uh, uh, synopsis real quick. We're, we're into, yeah, uh, we're almost done. We're almost done here. So they, uh, after they kiss, they head back to the sewers where Fusei is met by another group. Are these Cerberus troops? They all have bug out bags. They're all revealed to be part of the Wolf Brigade with the commander saying, We are wolves disguised as men. 
Patriots are in control. And they, they brought the uh, all the parts for one mech suit, which they uh, equip Fusei with. And Fu- there's a cool scene where Fusei puts on the mask, and you just see, like, there's no humanity in his eyes. Like, he's just like, I'm finally myself again behind the mask. And it's so haunting. In this last scene, he's so robotic. He walks around like a fucking automaton. Yeah. And so he just wipes out all of these uh, police forces that are trailing them. It's revealed basically that uh, that uh, Little Red Riding Hood had a, a tracker in yep. her bag the entire yep. time, right? And so the police are converging on their on their location, right? They're going to capture them and make this uh, a big scandal, potentially killing them in the mm-hmm. process. But but a trap's been actually set for yep. them. So they wipe yeah. out everybody, including uh, Fusei's friend Henme, who was behind the whole conspiracy. And after they escape from the sewers, they're they're out in like a, a derelict field, at which point the Wolf Brigade commander tells Fusei that uh, Kay needs to die in secret so that the Wolf Brigade is always assumed to have her captive. And we see Fusei is very visibly torn by this and seems to be having a crisis of faith. And his commander gives him a pistol and says, put an end to it now while you're still a beast. Which I think, you know, since it's called a werewolf, uh, uh, the direct translation is werewolf, like that's a fitting line of dialogue. Um, so Kay decides like, oh, he's not going to kill me. I, I got just what he needs. So she hugs him crying, reciting the end of Little Red Riding Hood. And Fusei just staring off into the distance. We hear a gunshot. She slumps to the ground. We are led to believe uh, Fusei killed her. But it's kind of open-ended, at least that's how I read it, where it's then revealed a sniper in the distance is putting his gun down. And he had like, you know, a bead on them. And he's standing right next to the uh, uh, the commander of the Wolf Brigade, and they're just like watching it all go down. It seems like they had insurance on him yeah. too, right? If you if you kind of slow down that last scene, um, you can see like smoke coming out of the pistol, right? That uh, that he's that he's held at her uh, at her right. stomach, right? So I think it is I think it is strongly implied that he shoots her, but they don't even trust right. him to mm-hmm. do it. Right, they don't know if he's going to do it, and they've been having a they have a beat on him the entire time. It just shows time. that like right. every single aspect of this is just like predetermined. Predetermined. Right. Everyone has insurance out on everyone else. Everything has to go according to plan, and if it doesn't, someone's going to get shot. And we're left with that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I will say uh, in looking up reviews of the movie after I finished watching it, a lot of people were like, "Damn." This ending would just made me really sad. <laughs> it's very cold. I mean, it's it's bleak in the way that I think a lot of uh, of Oshi's writing is. Yeah, well, but I w- I would say uh, I-, I think the the hopelessness is like went, meant to be way more impactful than it is usually. Because even at the end of like Ghost in the Shell, there is still like this element of hope, right? When uh, Kusanagi finally like. Uh, ascends her consciousness and then it's like no this is the start of much better things like yeah. things are going to be different and in pat labor too honestly right they they capture the um the, the leader of the terrorist sect that uh, that essentially is is the cause behind the kind of uh, coup that's going on and it's implied that while they can't fundamentally change the system that they're in um they have at least solved this case mm-hmm. right they've the- ended this crisis yeah there there was a problem to be solved all that happened that this one is we killed the lady and everyone thinks that she's still alive and we have her captive. So the mech Nazis will live to see another day. Basically yep. all that they've done is secured the future for the Kerberos brigade, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the capo structure, 
which, by the way, and this is a kind of a, a, a one of these markers that I keep wanting to point to, it's referenced subtly a couple times in the work, in the, in the film. Kerberos is not accomplishing its goal, right? Its stated goal is to, through superior firepower and, and brutal tactics, bring about an end to the, the protest movement, to, uh, to the, the actions of, this, of the sect, yeah. right? Which it has failed in, right? The, the terrorism is admittedly getting more um, pronounced, and the movement and the protests are growing in force. Yeah, and becoming right? more organized. They have like a whole uh, sewer network of bomb smuggling and weapon smuggling. So all that is accomplished in the entirety of the film is the securing of the future of this Nazi paramilitary group. Yeah, and it doesn't even seem like they have an interest in exposing the plot against the Wolf Brigade. And crucially, as with most of Oshi's work, it will also remain a secret. Right. Everything yeah. about this is yeah. going to remain a secret to the broader public. Well, uh, so I wanted to I wanted to ask you, Alex, since uh, you're very familiar with like Oshi's work. Why do you think obviously we have Jinro, which is about like a special unit that is not beholden to the regular rules of engagement and that is allowed to sort of do what they want. So Oshi does like he reuses that trope specifically in a lot of his work. I wonder what it is about like an extrajudicial an extrajudicial organization that is able to like get the job done that is so weirdly fascinating to him because in Ghost in the Shell uh the stand-in for the Wolf Brigade is Section 9 and they are like yeah they are like we you go beyond authority you don't answer to anyone like we we help get things done in ways that regular shit can't do uh which I have to be very honest, like, that comes across as some kind of, like, right-wing, oh, we gotta make a militia take the power back kind of shit. But this movie in particular is, like, also a very, very, I would argue, I mean, I don't think it's too arguable, but I would say that it's, like, very, very anti-fascist in its tone and, like, anti-fascist in, like, what it is trying to say about, uh the government structure and like what it is trying to say about like extrajudicial organizations like that. But it's also a thing he really fucking likes. So like, I'm not, that is something I'm very unsure of like how to, how to take if we consider the context of like the larger body of his work. Mamoru Oshii is commonly confused to be a right winger. Mm -hmm. He's not. No, I, I, it feels like he's definitely not. He's like very much, uh, in, in the sort of political leftist sphere, for sure, like, uh, even in terms of, like, who he's collaborated with and, like, what he chooses to write about, yeah. But, I, I again, like, why why does he love those, why does he love those orgs so much, you know? Oshi himself was part of a bunch of left-wing groups, and, and uh, you know, if you can read his Wikipedia, he's, uh, he was a part of the second round of ANPO protests against the Japanese um, mutual security treaty with the United States. And the kind of specter of the United States features pretty predominantly in his work. You know, I'm not, I, I'll, I'll admit, I'm not, um, I'm not somebody that's trained in kind of media analysis, mm. but um, his work is what I would call uh, fictional realism, right? And I think the beauty of the three works that we talked about previously, um, of, of Jinro and then uh, Ghost in the Shell and Pat Labor 2, um, is that their works that are able to say a lot more about the world that we live in, um, despite the fact that they are functionally in fictional universes, right? Mm -hmm. The first two in 
The first two in science fiction futures and this in an alternative history. They're they're much more revealing about the um, and and Oshi's politics are much more transcendent than a lot of other media can get, despite the fictional nature of the worlds that they inhabit. Mm-hmm. And I think these military groups, to, to reference a previous episode and a thing we said in it, these military groups are doing functionally, for instance, what in um, in 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 other pieces of media, um, kind of propagandistic and, and maybe simplified media, stand-ins for kind of fascist structures in those. Like I'm mm. thinking of, um, so in like in the Hunger Games, mm. right? The the government in the Hunger Games is like an overtly fascist structure, right. and that's useful to people and I think uh, uh, narratively attractive because that overtly that overtly fascist uh, body is it, more easy. Enemy. easy yeah, is an easy enemy and and much easier to criticize. And by making um, some of these uh, kind of uh, a secretive groups, in this case, Jinro is just a, it's just straight up visually a fascist group, right? Yeah. They're wearing like the fucking uh, a World War Two German helmets. They're they're running around with uh, I, what I assume is like a like military surplus MG42s. They, by the way, like visually, they mow people down with like hundreds of bullets, right? They riddle them with fucking yeah. bullets in a way that is totally unnecessary, oh, yeah. right? They act as as uh, as like firing squads um, and 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 kind of invincible executioners, mm-hmm. right? For for their political enemies, uh, I, I think it's because it's it's far more naked as a kind of inciting point for a critique. The capo. Uh, unit is just straight up, you know the the fucking fry corps or the SA right yeah. or the the um, SS uh, death uh, brigades right the secret they're, police yeah the secret police right they're 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 very nakedly just a a fascist illiberal group yeah for sure but I counter that to my I, I guess contrast that to section nine in Ghost in the Shell because like. Throughout, like, not only the movies and then also the series that happen, Section 9 are kind of, like, shown to be the good guys. Like, this is how a good guy unit secret police would handle it. Um, which, uh, yeah, I, I suppose uh, I wonder, like, what the I, what the mixed message is about, I suppose. I know within the world of uh, 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 Jinro... Germany won World War II, and they have since denazified back into the Weimar Republic. And maybe, maybe he's giving us three potential futures of what mass surveillance and secret policing and extrajudicial efforts can look like in three very different worlds. I think he's actually trying to tell us how we got to the world that we live in. That this is an allegory for the the post-war era and the development of the security state mm-hmm. that we then see allegorically represented in other films. Okay. Right? So why why is Jinro uh, a Nazi brigade? I, I think that's that's most represented in in the in the kind of in the prologue section where its creation is described. The flashbacks of like World War II. Yes. Okay. And, yeah. And from this we can infer that the creation of Capo and of um, and of the the Kerberos brigades is a political choice, right? Mm. In light of the disappointment in the post-war era, which in Japan and other places in 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 the in the world is very real, mm. right? Militarization is chosen instead of politically dealing with the root causes of that social instability and of that political frustration, right? Mm-hmm. We pick to shoot you instead of dealing with 
um, negotiation and the political realities of why people are in the street. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess you know that makes a lot of sense then uh, in terms of like the historical specificity of this movie too, because like uh, from other stuff that I've read online, uh, not not about this movie, but more so about like uh, during the fifties, there were also a bunch of like left wing protests that were going on as well uh, in response to Anpo. Uh, if you could. Uh, elaborate on that though i'm familiar with that what that is and that was uh created by the diet the japanese government and like there were there were lots of left-wing protests that were happening and uh i believe the protests were happening in response to uh the current leaders of japan trying to return back to uh hyper nationalistic isolationism and uh, now i'm making some connections uh to mishima and yeah. uh, what what that all culminated in. So the Anpo protests were a, a series of protests by largely left-wing groups, although there were some right-wing groups there too, about the continuation of the Japan's relationship with the United States. Essentially, by treaty, um, the Japanese government is in large part subject to the United States in terms of a lot of its internal governance. And you'll see this as a as a recurring theme and, and a, a tremendous amount of Japanese uh, political... That's uh, Article uh, 19, right? Yes. Like, yeah, okay. And, and in, in, a, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of um, uh, Japanese kind of political media. So the, the Anpo protests, both in the kind of 1960s version and later in the 1970s, o- Oshi was a part of the second movement, right? He mm-hmm. was growing up, he was a child... Um, during the first movement, these these massive protests were essentially ignored, and and by ignoring them, the kind of populist uh, notion that Japan be a a self determining democracy and state were put down quite literally by 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 state force and by political sidelining. Right, the, they were not allowed, and Japan still right uh, uh, is not allowed to assert itself as an independent government, mm-hmm. and. Because of that, certain uh, factions within the government seek to deal with that um, that inability to to, to self assert and act in, and act in different ways because of it, right? But I would argue that that the kind of world that uh, Jinro and and Oshi's other works present is not unique to Japan, right? Mm-hmm. The the fact that this is imposed on the Japanese does not mean that basically the same thing does not happen in places like the United States. Right. Sure. Or in places like Europe, dissatisfaction with the new order, with a capitalist order, by the way, that that's um, either uh, domestic or imposed on a kind of domestic audience is put down by force by the state and by political sidelining. Uh, Jinro is uh, is a is a piece of media that shows you state violence. Right. Mm-hmm. The element of that that is just the, the state saying, if you're going to protest, we're going to arrest you. And if you move further past that into other realms of violence, um, we'll do we'll, we will escalate the violence. Um, and that's a thing that happened during uh, Oshi's childhood and adolescence. And it's kind of colored his social and political commentary. Ooh. So to so to that end, right, Jinro is not necessarily um, what what if, what if things were different? It's more of like, even if even if things were different, we'd still be in the same spot that we are currently. Like he's telling you a story about what happened to us, right? Yeah, about yeah, what yeah. happened to everyone, people mm-hmm. in the United States. This I I would argue that Jinro is is kind of the most political work because it is ultimately a 
a story about the success of liberalism and about liberalism using militarization and violence of the state to put down and to end the promise of liberalism that is kind of specified in the four. So what is the propaganda of general? Why are we even talking about it on fucking propagandos, right? Well, so I, I think obviously on like a very surface level, there is some very clear like um, uh, anti-police like uh, propaganda. Like it, it's definitely talking about like what a, what a police state is and like uh, how we definitely don't want that. But again, we, we also had this discussion about how the police state is a almost sort of a constant in Oshi's work. So like... Let's... It's a constant, and it's being ratcheted up, mm-hmm. right? So in in Jinro, we see the creation of a new kind of police state, a new kind of militarization in this fucking, you know, crazy-ass Gestapo death squad unit. And then we see that it we see that that, that, that unit's purpose is unaccomplished, right? That it's not even doing, it's, it, doing the job that it was set out to do and that things are getting worse. Police state and surveillance state are two very different things. And what they want to set up, what the uh, what the other police forces want to set, the local police forces want to set up in general, is a surveillance state. Could it mm. be argued that Ghost in the Shell is the police state has become the surveillance state? This is the evolution of what would happen if we had gotten rid of the Nazi mechs. And the Nazi mechs? I mean, instead of instead of the brute force, instead of like the boot on your back, you're just being watched all the time. And I think Jinro presents this. It, it, it works out oppositely in Jinro because the you know the the, the fascist paramilitaries um, uh, stop the coup right on them and the the procession into the like security state right the the intelligence version of that. Um, which I think is the world that we live in. But yeah, it's about uh, it's 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 the it's the state trying to feel out what direction will lead to uh, the aspects of control and quote unquote order that it wants, right? And crucially, the order that it wants is not uh, negotiable, right? It's unlike the kind of promises of liberalism and promises of prosperity that 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 Jinro even kind of alludes to directly. It states it, right? This is not up for negotiation. We don't want to talk to you, uh, the protester, the sect group, right, or the or the disenfranchised, you know, rioter, um, the frustrated citizen of this world. We don't want to talk to you about what you want. Your your escalation to levels of violence, Im- by implication, right, because of a political, because of a failure of addressing that those desires through politics, is going to be met with force, even though that force in and of itself does not precipitate an end to those political problems. So I would argue that 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 first like the the movie presents uh, militarization as a kind of rejection of politics in the mm-hmm. creation of the Kerberos unit. And then the second thing it shows you is the alienation that that group feels to one its own goals and in so doing it becomes an exercise in the self-preservation of these different institutions of the police, right? The military is not mentioned in this one, but in other works of Oshis, Oshis it is. But mm-hmm. certainly in the Capo, the Capo unit, they're not succeeding in defeating their political enemies. So their purpose becomes a self-preservation of their ultimately the, the Wolf Brigade's trying for their own kind of ideology, but mm-hmm. a self-preservation of their own group despite their failures, right? The the stated goal of of suppressing opposition to the state and of the order has been replaced with a naked desire of just preserving their existing power. So then it feels like, uh, I guess, and I, could... I think that's I think that's represented through the alienation of Fuse to the Red Riding Hood character. Uh, yeah, or, or when he's on the bus. 
Yeah, right. when he's on the bus, yeah. when when he 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 having become an animal separate from society, and I would say separate from even like not just the kind of the 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 way of being a human and that you don't murder other humans, but the desires of that society, right? The wants and needs of that society, the kind of democratic ethos of a liberal society, he is just he and the group are totally cut off from. And that the ideology of the group, the ideology maybe of fascism, is to maintain that separation. Right. We, we were talking about the AOA nation that uh, uh, Fusay felt on the bus just now where it got mentioned. And it reminded me that that scene ends with him staring at a thing that you see throughout the movie, which is just wolves. He's in the museum and he's staring at wolves. We see it's called the Wolf Brigade. That's the name of their, uh, 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 of their skunk works. It's also like quite a nice little coincidence that that's just like a recurring theme throughout the film. It's Little Red Riding Hood. And to the point where, like, he is in a wolf, a, a mech suit, and he is a wolf, the beast within, and he's dealing with women wearing red robes. Red, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, uh, what's it called? The, the actual term is, like, a Red Riding Hood bomb runner or something like that. So I wanted to ask y'all, like, it's in it up to the point where the very end, Kay is reciting the poem before Fusei puts a bullet in her. Why insist so much on red writing what are we at the audience supposed to take away from the like just hitting us over the head over and over and over with the little red riding hood this is by the way as a piece of media i think this is like one of the weakest aspects of Jinro. is i think this is actually pretty smart but in the movie it feels real fucking dumb <laughs> this this red riding hood shit feels so fucking ham-fisted right and so forced it kind of like hurts the work overall, and I think it's why it's like not as celebrated as some of his other stuff. I mean, yes, okay, the Red Riding Hood. We're supposed to take the analogy that like it was a monster disguised as a man, basically, and that's like the, obviously the general moral of uh, Red Riding Hood, right? But it is interesting, like that the the use of it uh, seems to very much be like almost. The, the Red Riding Hood ends up taking far more of, like, a central role to the plot than you'd see in, like, another, you know, sort of metatextual allegorical thing where we reference another work in, like, another piece of media, right? Yeah, why why is it that it's at such a forefront, you know? It's so fucking literal in this one. I have, I have an idea. And, I mean, it's kind of spoon-fed to us at a point where the, the, the commander of the Wolf Brigade points out, like, that... Only in the stories that humans tell do humans succeed. And that, like, when a beast tells the story, he's implying that, like, when a beast tells the story, the beast win. Or the beasts don't tell stories. Right. We're seeing the idea that, like, the fairy tale of humanity escaping the wolf is just that, a fairy tale. In reality, the wolf is going to absolutely decimate anything in its path. Like, you will not survive. The wolf will kill you, and the wolf will be here long before you're gone. I think it's a story about degeneration. And I think the reason that, like, it's smart, and one of the reasons I like this movie, is because I think it's very obvious, and it's also incredibly cryptic. Right? Jinro is, by far, of the three we've talked about, the most cryptic of all three of them. Early on in the in the wolf's tale in, in within Jinro... I think one of the clues is that is that like the, the the Red Riding Hood is described as wearing metal clothes in like the first couple uh, sentences, and that this is an allegory for the Second World War, right? And that throwing off these the iron clothes and returning to the mother, right, a kind of a pre-war society and a pre-war state of of, of social promise 
is is the the kind of demilitarization process that uh, that Japan and and to be honest other places in the world underwent. And then the wolf is the militarism of the war. Fuse and the Capo Brigade being represented over and over and over as wolves is a showcase that the kind of militarism, right, that the state is going to employ is a direct threat to the Red Riding Hoods, which are the kind of society broadly that they are alienated from. The parable is not just an indictment of fascist paramilitary groups, right? Because the, the story shows you over and over that the police fundamentally don't want something different than the capo brigades do. They want the same thing. It's just a question of how they look, of the, the specific kind of action yeah. that that group or that organization, that the state is going to take to ensure uh, that, that rejection of politics that creates the Kerberos group in the four. Right. Right. The militarization itself is going to eat the youth. It's going to eat the partisans or the kind of uh, the people that demand of the state something different than what it provides. Militarism is the wolf that ends up kind of devouring the mother. The kind of vision of a pre-war prosperous and, you know, small d democratic right sure. state. And then eventually the society at large. I kept thinking a lot about the fucking, uh, who's that philosopher, Rousseau, and like naturalism, and and his specific argument about like, when, when you decide to stop living in nature, you cannot return back. Or rather, when you choose to pursue like a, a life outside of like the natural things, you cannot return back to nature. And it very much feels like sort of an inversion of this where, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of flipping the script. Uh, it's very much an inversion of like, uh, well, listen, if you're going to maintain a life as a beast, like why do you think you can go back to living as a human, like living as a regular person? Yeah. Like, yeah, you are. And for Fuse, like, uh, he is a tool of the state and that is all he knows and like even at the end of it where we are you know we're maybe given like the idea of hope for a new life that is quickly much taken away because like nah you can't you can't have that you're not allowed to have that anymore like you you bit the apple you saw behind the mask like you did whatever sort of fanciful words to say like you can't go back anymore kind of yeah. thing and it's, it's crucial that, that Fuse's kind of dissociation, that his mental breakdown is driven by the question of why. It's repeated over and over in, in the show every time he has a flashback. In, in the inciting event where he doesn't shoot the, the partisan girl. And then later, it's hammered over and over the question of why, right? Why are, why are the partisans, why is this terrorist group, and why are protesters willing to sacrifice their lives why are they why are they such a frustration to the state and to law and order right and that he and people within the the government at large but certainly within capo are unable to answer a question that is very obvious right mm -hmm. why are they doing this because of the kind of inequality we're shown we're quietly shown uh, several times during uh, the film that this is about left wing causes mm -hmm. right essentially that this is about um, frustrations about inequality yeah. it's about poverty it's about a, a failure of the state to deliver on a post-war promise mm -hmm. all by the yeah. way very real to japan's kind of post-war we yeah. do see scenes of like homeless people living in boxes and, and alleyways we do see like a drunk guy who just walks up to the cops he's like what's going on and then they arrest him immediately and mm -hmm. he's just like i just wanted to know what was going on which yeah. funny and haunting at the same time 
in creation of the Capo Brigade, the, 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 the system has chosen a rejection of, of those social desires. It's wholeheartedly rejected a left-wing critique of the, of the society that seeks to alleviate those needs. And that having rejected um, outright those, those political desires, it creates an institution in the police and in the Capo Brigades that is actually unable that the individuals that are a part of the Capo Brigades and, and the police are actually unable to understand why society is rising up uh, against them violently, right? Mm-hmm. Why are they having to put down this violence over and over? They're actually unable to answer that. Henley, yeah. uh, in, in one scene, directly talks to Fuse and, and basically says, you know, like, you know, we would all we all want to know what these fucking people want, but you know, it's really impossible to say. Yeah, and it's like, no, there, there, is it? What the fuck? There, there's like two themes that come to mind when you're talking about that. One is when the it's right after the sewer bombing at the beginning, and the generals are talking, and they're just saying like, oh, the terrorists always use women and children to ex- uh, and exploit them so they can get their violence achieved. Like, so they 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 believe what they're saying, and they refuse to even consider their what their beliefs are, what their wants are, and then the, the ultimate representation of this thing that you're saying, Alec, is right when the original sect member goes to blow up her purse bomb. You hear Fusey say, why? Like, why are you willing to die for this? What are you willing to die for? I don't understand. And that question is never answered. He doesn't even ask it again. In the end of the movie, in Remaining Animal, is putting that question away and not answering it, crucially, right? The thing that distinguishes the wolves, the militarism of the new state from society, is choosing or being unable to answer the question of why is there social upheaval, right? It, it reads very much like, uh, oh, why are they mad? Oh, well, uh, clearly they're they're upset about our freedoms. And it's yeah. like, no, we listed an outline of all the points, you they're, know? These sewer bombers are just too sensitive these days. <laughs> <laughs> they're cocked, dude. They're cocked soy terrorists. Oh, God. Fucking woke. They don't even woke have cool mech suits like bombers, us. Dude. <laughs> they're trying to destroy our Nazi mech suits because of woke. <laughs> and that and that by the way like when you when you put it in those terms by the way I think I think Jinro kind of is a little bit too cryptic about this and it's why it doesn't really succeed but I think an analysis on that level makes the film as a kind of um allegory and history for how we got to the present day I mean mm. to any leftist that's a very kind of understandable world that it presents yeah. right it, in and I guess I guess in the framing that I'm presenting here right that's how I read it that's what I think it's saying about our lives because it's so readable in those terms, right? All of a sudden, everything clicks for me um, yeah. when you talk about it that way. Well, as cryptic of a movie uh, as it is, it's no longer cryptic if you listen to this episode. <laughs> yeah, we, we're we're we've at an hour it. forty-five, and we have been uh, uh, much. We're we're now getting to the point where we're talking longer than the movie itself, and yeah. uh, at the risk of avoiding the ham-fisted Little Red Robin Hood. A little Red Riding Hood conversation. <laughs> little Red him. Robin Hood. Bro. Little Red Robin Hood. Hey, I mean, he's Bottomless a fries. Red Robin. Yeah. Yum. But um, we do we do have some uh, uh, housekeeping to discuss with our guests. Oh, oh, yeah. Go for it. Let's keep house. I love the way white people talk. I love the way white people smell. I love the way white people yell. I love the way white folks are all over the blues. 
I love the way white folks are all over the news. I love the way white folks think they're the best. I hate the way white folks do everything else! Rahul, um, you are the front man of my current favorite band in Houston. That's right, you have you have knocked out of cut this. I can't. I can't. You are now my favorite band in the city. Wow, dude, your your two favorite bands in the city are with two of your best friends in them. Interesting. What did that? <laughs> what the fuck did that mean? I love my friends. I'm not like you, some That's... asshole who steals my questions within this record. Come on, hey, listen, you don't don't ask a question that I got to think if, about. If, like... if Alex started the band, he'd be my favorite band in Lake Charles. That's all I'm saying. All right, I support my friends. <laughs> all of like the Lake Charles bands are just like shitty fucking '80s cover but... <laughs> bands. Hey, I mean, we're kind of a shitty '80s cover band well, too. So Hell yes, the, I, friendship aside. It's definitely what I really, really like about this band is that it's like it's saying something. It's bombastic. Rahul Rao and the White, you uh, we've we've talked a little bit before, but I don't want to speak for you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the band and your role within it? Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm I am Rahul Rao. I am the Rahul Rao and Rahul Rao and the Whites. The Whites are the rest of my band members. Um, the band itself, if I were to give it. If I were to put it in genre terms, um, I guess this is for people who know, I guess. Uh, it, it is a no-wave funk band. Uh, I, I like to put more emphasis on it like that. But in reality, it's more of a... Uh, uh, people have described it as like art house punk music, which is cool too, I guess. I just think it's a groovy time. Uh, I'm just trying to write groovy songs. Yeah, one thing we talked about is how you're kind of subverting the big band era of like white band leaders calling upon like musicians of color to play for them. And you're flipping that. Uh, and it's very fun. Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, that was definitely like intentional for sure. Um, the direct reference to the name Rahul around the whites is a, uh, is a reference to, uh, a band called James chance and the blacks, which was like a New York, no wave band. But no, no one in the band was black at all. But uh, it was a very sort of audacious name for the time. Uh, and again, this is like late uh, late 60s, early 70s. So like racial politics, racial identity politics are at like a forefront in the American sort of uh, zeitgeist, as it were. The cultural lexicon at the time. So yeah, for him to call his band that was very like a very subversive thing. But now in the modern era, like... All it just reads at is like, all it just reads like, excuse me, is just like, you know, some edgelord kind of bullshit. So my counter response to that is like, well, okay, well, fine, I'll have a band with the whites and they'll just be a bunch of white dudes because I, I, I can do that without, you know, uh, being culturally insensitive in a way. Brown frontman, white backups. Yeah, I and I think a lot of, you know, the fact that I sing about my very specific sort of like... Um, my brownness and like my own sort of like point of view about it uh, it can be a little uh alienating i suppose if you're not if you are a white person at the same time like the members of my band are all they're all definitely leftist leaning for sure but they all can ultimately take a joke too a lot of the dynamic of the band especially at live shows is me like giving them orders and kind of berating them for stuff 
Um, It'd be funny if they couldn't take a joke and it was just like a whole row on the snowflakes. (laughs) 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 He's bullying me. I mean, hey, listen, that would, that's also a very funny name. (laughs) Like, damn, I wish you'd suggested that before I fucking made the band camp. (laughs) Fuck, cut this from the episode. (laughs) Damn, dude. Damn, that's a great name. (laughs) Fuck. Damn, okay. But yeah, um, the band itself... I I hesitate to call myself political, but everything is political. All all or all art is political. You know what I mean. With that uh, with that sort of framework in mind, uh, when I write songs, I try to write them about like the song that uh, Connor will show you slash like the one that I'm trying to promote right now is a song about white people. The song it's, itself is called a nuanced analysis of race relations, but that title belies a. Uh, a very much tongue-in-cheek, you know, writing style, and like, yeah, it's it's a silly it's a silly song that at, by the end of it, I'm kind of like I'm speaking very directly to like things that have happened to me and like experiences that have happened that for uh, white people are very like funny and silly, but for non-white people, it's just like yeah, I I get this. Oh, I thought it was a parody song. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Well, go check it out in the show yeah, notes. Y'all. It's really, really good. Rahul Rao, thank you so, so much for joining us on Propagandos. You're our first guest. Our first guest ever. Hey, all right. The first guest. And the first anime episode. So we might, maybe we'll have some more episodes on uh, on Oshi's other works that I love. Um, maybe we'll just do some more anime. I mean, there's uh, there's lots of suggestions for for anime that is either propagandistic or, or political in some oh, fashion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, Everything's political, but some stuff's more political. Oh, than yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, for one sure. day I want to talk about Legend of the Galactic Heroes and what it means about like yeah. democracy versus like overtly German fascism. <laughs> mm-hmm. You could have a whole fucking podcast. There's like a thousand episodes yeah. of that shit. <laughs> yeah. There's one podcast that very clearly gave up after like ten episodes. It's like, all right. <laughs> oh well. Was that uh, was Legend of the Galactic Heroes? Was that um. I know that was the show, but did we watch the movie? Was that the movie that we watched uh, um, together at like the old at the old house, Connor? Potentially, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's um, uh, Rav- Ravel Bolero is playing as a bunch of ships are just like exploding each other in the middle of the uh, in the middle of space. It's very very slow, but it's just like classical music playing over like naval. Mm-hmm. Uh, intergalactic battles. My friends and co-hosts know way too much about fucking anime shit, dude. I I would like to let our listeners know I'm only kind of a weeb. I'm weeb for good anime, dude. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a okay. white hat weeb. Shut the fuck We're up, black hat dude. weebs. I'm a white hat weeb. <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen. All, all I'm gonna say is like, all that says to me is that you're someone who needs to watch some more cool anime. And yeah. like, also, this year in particular, anime has been fucking good <laughs> lately. Oh, are we in a good year? Oh, yeah. Uh, late 2023, 2024 has been chef's kiss, baby. Like, I, there are currently, like, four or five uh, ongoing series that I'm just, like, watching right now. That I'm, I'm about to fucking, like, after we finish this episode, I'm about to log on to Crunchyroll and see if those epi- the newest episodes have fucking logged up. The last time I live watched like an anime series must have been Kill a Kill, like w- with like the 4chan anime board, like having fun like every week, like watching those. 
Yeah. That should tell you how fucking long it's been. It's like, what, 10 yeah. years ago? Yeah, uh, and Kill the Kill is still very good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, shit's just gotten better. Man, I really, if you guys can find the time, I would really like to watch that 86, uh, talk about that 86 show. Because, like, the only people who have uh, seen it are motherfucking weirdos online. And, like... I can't say I can't talk about like the inherent political themes about that show, and that show is fucking dog. If you like thinking about uh, the context and like media and like the themes of work, that is a show that uh, really nails some shit. Again, in kind of a heavy-handed way sometimes, but like all worth it for the the greater narrative. It's very good, and this I, definitely can be a show where we talk about. Um... Uh, let's just say media with propaganda elements that we like as opposed to incredibly shitty yeah. <laughs> like incredibly shitty pieces of media like like designated it, survivor or fucking it, american it, like i'm just thinking of this week on propaganda the propaganda of tenchi muyo and harem anime <laughs> <laughs> all right that's yeah. a little bit much <laughs> yeah but uh i i do definitely agree with you guys like in listening to previous episodes um yeah, I, I do kind of like, obviously, like listening to the ways in which media uses propaganda and in a negative way or in a way that is inconsistent with the way that we view the world is obviously cool, right? And it's fun to engage with the cringe. But yeah, I, I think uh, trying to show pieces of propaganda that are like trying to instill something important or like, you know, something that is more meaningful. Yeah. Help us analyze the world in a way that, like, a lot of other media fails to. I think that's the success of Genro. I think, and I think Genro, by the way, for for leftists who would, you know, otherwise um, maybe watch and appreciate it. One, it's too cryptic, and two, there's a motherfucking like Nazi robot on the yeah. poster. Right? Yeah. So that's going to be a big turnoff to a lot of people. We're like. I don't really want to watch the uh, the Nazi anime movie. Yeah, and let's not even have the greater discussion of like why Japan is except is obsessed with Nazi absolutely. Germany. Dude, that's absolutely. Like... I I was describing the premise of this show to somebody, and he's like, "Oh, cool. Do you actually like watch and analyze like specific propaganda films?" And I was just like, "That's not that's not how we view propaganda, man." anything could be seen as a propaganda film. Like, the propaganda of a film is more important than, like, is this a propaganda film or not? And then the light in his eyes went out, and he just, like, kind of zoned out. Oh, like, boo. <laughs> I mean, we could watch, like, fucking Jack Reacher or something. The problem with shit like that is, like, a lot of people are like, Top Gun's not a fucking propaganda <coughs> movie, and it's like, okay, dude, Jack Reacher's not a fuck. It's just a TV oh, show, no, bro. Yeah, and it's Jack, like, Jack Reacher is totally, like... What what if like this uh, good looking like cis heteronormative white man was uh, killing a bunch of brown dudes, non American dudes? What if he did that? What if that was his whole personality? He's basically me. All of this is Dante Alighieri's fault. He wrote the first fucking self insert fanfic, and now we gotta we have to deal with the ramifications of everyone wanting to be a Mary Sue and everything. Like, yeah. And now we got the Star Wars. All right. uh, if we brought it full circle, it's the Italians again. <laughs> All right. On that note, thanks for joining us, Rahul. Thanks for listening, everybody. Follow us on Instagram. Yeah, thank you for having fo me. Follow us on Twitter. We're not on fucking Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Propagandos Pod, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Oh. I promise to post the episodes. Don't regularly. you mean X? Sorry. Fuck off. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Bye. Does anybody have a fun title for this episode? Um, what the. Uh, 
is there some furry term for wolves? I'm trying to think of like Nazi furries since they're wolves. Uh, yeah, fucking hot, dude. It's it. People already draw the fuck out of that already. So I'm sure there's terms ooh, for ooh, it. Ooh, ooh, Nazi wolf persona. You could just put like Jin Jinwo the Wolf Boy game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with like the with like the little like Emoji. what, yeah, the, what is that thing? Yeah. Ooh, okay, Uwu Jinwo Wolf Brigade. <laughs> with Rahul <Awoo>. Rao. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dude, you know what? That's what fucking Jinro is missing. There's not enough. Awoo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please don't do a false flag. <laughs> My boy, it's so hungry for blood. Jinwo the Wolf Brigade. Ooh, ow. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Have you seen this? This is like top cringe. This is like, Rahul definitely knows what this is. It's like a copy pasta that like nuzzles your necky wecky. <laughs> oh, yes, I've seen this. <laughs> oh, <fucking> God. <laughs> God uh. <laughs> oh, can I, uh, can I stop my record? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Let's, um, let's shut it down. <laughs> Ooh, you so warm. That's basically that's basically this movie. That's basically General of the Wolf Brigade.